Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine your kid is playing outside. The neighbor's basketball hoop is so close, just two houses down, that you can hear the ball on the pavement while you're upstairs in your bedroom. Then there's a pop, the dribbling stops, and you rush outside to find your 12-year-old son with his arm nearly blown off, caught in crossfire that had nothing to do with him. That was LaShonda Green's reality six years ago in Detroit. And so is this. She and her son, Michael, continued living in that neighborhood, and no one was ever convicted for the shooting, though police say they know who did it. The suspect lives down the block, and one day, while talking about the shooting with a reporter, that man drives by and waves, and Michael instinctively waves back before realizing who's behind the wheel. I have no idea. That's one of the guys that was the suspect. Y'all just waved at each Michael other. Didn't know. He didn't he know that was Interesting. From the team that brought you accused in collaboration with The Trace, this is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. When you talk about guns and violence, Detroit is often one of those cities in America propped as an example of the worst of the worst. It's right up there with Chicago, with New Orleans, with Baltimore. Sometimes it feels reductive. I worked in Detroit for about eight years and loved it there. Sure, I saw a lot of crime, but I was a crime reporter. It goes with the territory. Plenty of people live their daily lives in Metro Detroit, only peripherally aware of the gun violence plaguing the worst neighborhoods. They go to work and they raise their kids, just like anyone else. Detroit is bustling with family-friendly stuff to do ice skating on campus marshes, buying flowers at Eastern Market. The aquarium at Belle Isle was designed by Albert Kahn, one of the most innovative industrial architects in history. How cool is that? But it would be a lie to say that most lives in Detroit proper aren't somehow affected by the crime there. You learn things living in an area like that. You learn to watch your surroundings. You don't leave stuff in your car. You lock your doors and don't open them for strangers. And for Michael Green, you learn how to live just feet away from someone suspected of shooting you. When I go somewhere, I don't let my, I don't like my, like if I sit down, I don't like my back against like the wall. I can't see nothing. Like, and when I pump gas, like I let it pump itself and I just be looking around like I be on like, my head be on a swivel or just have my back against my car. And I even, sometimes I have my back against my car because I can't see what's behind me. So I just always looking around. I always be aware of my surroundings. If I'm just looking, like sometimes people just think I just be staring like, no, I just be aware of my surroundings. It's always been like that. To be clear, when Michael says it's always been like that, he means even before the shooting. This awareness he has isn't part of his trauma. It's part of his reality as a young man raised in Detroit. This episode of Aftermath will be a little different because it's as much about an environment as it is about an event. The backdrop matters. In some towns, deadly shootings are so common 
The people living in their midst grow accustomed to them in a way outsiders can't comprehend. So we'll talk about Detroit, the only home Michael has ever really known. Michael is LaShonda Green's only child, a shipping technician clerk and caregiver. LaShonda had Michael when she was 27, but somehow manages to look more like his older sister than his mother, which kind of suits how they act together. Sometimes he thinks he's my little brother. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Don't you? No. Yeah, sometimes. Or my daddy, he's my brother, my father. <laughs> yeah. He was born in 1999 when LaShonda was married to his father. His dad's still part of his life. We met him briefly, but he didn't want to be interviewed. When the couple split up, LaShonda moved into her aunt and uncle's thousand-square-foot bungalow on the city's north side. The house has been in the family for decades. Michael was very young. One or two, because we moved here. Like When I divorced his father, Michael and I came and moved here. But I'm, I used to live here when I was a little girl with my parents. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then we left and moved over on the west side of Detroit. Well, that's still the west side, but Seven Mile area. Okay. And then when I got married, then we had a house, and like I said, we had divorced, and then me and Michael moved here. Okay. And of course, so going I thought you wasn't looking forward to that. <laughs> But my uncle was. <laughs> he liked it? Yeah, yeah, my uncle loved it. Mm-hmm. Good, good father figure? Oh, yes. Uncle Roy was like a father figure to him and a grandfather. Mm-hmm. She like a mother and a grandmother because I worked all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Single mom, there's not Single really mom, a way yeah. around that. I had to hey, make a way fine here. I was going to get to school. I had to tuck them to school. I had to make arrangements for this, make arrangements for that. Or sometimes she would take them to school. Mm-hmm. The family was tight on money, but stable. In fact, Michael's 18 now, and they all still live together. Aside from a semester he left the state for college, they always have. The neighborhood where they live is rough, and it's been rough for decades. They bought the house a couple of years after the 1967 Detroit riots, which were rooted in race and incredibly violent. 43 people died in the five days the riots lasted. More than 340 were injured. Michael's home sits less than a mile from the heart of this. It might seem irrelevant to bring up a 51-year-old riot, one that Michael himself probably knows little about. But in truth, what happened all those years ago still matters. It lingers. About 1,400 buildings were burned during those riots, and some of the husks remain. The neighborhood itself was the scene of... um uh, you know, a week of arson and looting, and it caused a lot of disruption uh, afterwards. And um, while the neighborhood 50 years ago was working class and middle class and African-American, it became over the decades since 67 a very poor and pretty desperate location. That's Bill McGraw, a retired free press reporter who, once upon a time, was my editor there. He's something of a walking encyclopedia on all things Detroit, having co-authored a book called The Detroit Almanac, 300 Years of Life in the Motor City. The 67 riots were no doubt a turning point for the city, but that's not to say they were the singular reason Detroit became a symbol of urban blight. Neighborhoods like Michael's already had been struggling. It's one of the factors that helped lead to the riots in the first place. 
Changes were happening demographically in Detroit through the 50s and the 60s, and the neighborhood fairly rapidly became African-American. Um, many people moved to that neighborhood from the downtown ghetto that finally was broken up through um, because of legal means or legal, uh, laws that were passed, but also because the city basically took the main black neighborhood in Detroit and turned it into a middle-class housing project uh, for white people. Those folks living downtown moved into Michael's neighborhood. How this plays out for people like Michael and LaShonda is that their blocks are marred with abandoned homes. Some are boarded up, some are burned out. An overgrown lot sits across the street from the family home. If you've got a um, solid block, and it's been proven now, we've got decades of evidence in Detroit, one abandoned house on a block is, uh, it's almost a cliche here, it's like a cancer because it starts eating away at the block. The city isn't equipped to tear down destroyed houses in any sort of a timely way. Sometimes houses will sit around for, for years. And so um, when they're abandoned, just the weather alone uh, takes a beating on them. But then they're often a, a location for kids playing, for uh, let's say drug use or other criminality. There's been a long record in Detroit of um, uh, rapes, including schoolgirl school rapes that have taken place in abandoned houses, and they often catch fire. Now, none of this was really part of Michael's consciousness in 2012. He was just a kid, and the life he knew in the city was simply normal to him. So some of the houses near his were empty, so what? And that vacant lot across the street? Well, he knew that wasn't the safest place to play. When you're a kid, these things don't stand out if they're part of your daily life. Neither did the sound of gunfire. He wasn't like some people I've interviewed who mistook bullets for firecrackers. Living in his neighborhood, he said, You know the difference. Like, you know, like, with a firework, it's like, you hear, you can hear, like, it's like a stream noise to it. And, like, with a gun, like a gunfire, it's louder. It's way louder. He knew this because that sound was as familiar to him as a dribbling basketball. But let's back up. All right. So let's start with uh, Michael as a little boy. He was very hyper. You know, that is the very first thing his grandfather said, so I'm imagining... He was a very hyper little boy, yes. And he loved playing basketball. He was been playing basketball since he was, like, really two. Like, every time you get him a ball, like, I bought him a basketball around for Christmas, and he always just had the basketball in his hand. Basketball suited him, too. He was a big kid, so big for his age, in fact, that LaShonda often had to tell people, no, he's not slow. He doesn't talk as well as you think he should because he's a lot younger than you think he is. Teachers thought he might have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but Michael says he was mostly just bored. He didn't like sitting still. Basketball was a chance to run around without getting in trouble. And when he was on the court, he was able to keep focused. He joined his first school basketball team when he was seven, and it was about that time that he started using the hoop a couple of houses down from his. The coaches told LaShonda her son was a natural. They would say, He knows the guy. He knows how to play. He's like his coordination was a little off, but he knew how to play basketball. You know how some kids, they, some of them just play and just throw the ball. Michael actually knows how to play basketball. (laughs) He knows the game. Elizabeth Van Brocklin, my reporting partner, asks, yeah. How did you learn it? Just came natural, basically. Like I used to like watch a lot of basketball just on TV. 
That's all I used to watch. Like basketball, basketball, basketball. That's all I used to see basically like I just watched basketball or sports stuff. You know, it was funny the other night him and I were talking. And I said, Michael, I was like, remember when Hawaii had that little scare? I said, and it only had like 20 minutes. I said, what would you do in 20 minutes? He said, <laughs> go find a basketball gym to play basketball. I said, what? I said, well, I'm gonna be praying. He said, I'm gonna do that too. <laughs> I was like, you really love basketball, huh? <laughs> it was mid-March 2012 when he asked to go play hoops. LaShonda immediately said no. Finish your homework first. Oh, come on, Michael said. I just have one thing left to do, and it's for art class. I can do it later. LaShonda relented. She moved her car to the street so he could play in their driveway. After a few minutes, he asked to go to the neighbors instead. She did the mom thing and asked him who all was there. The list was short, and she knew all the names, so she said, fine, go ahead. So then, like, maybe, like, 10 minutes later... Not even 10 minutes, I heard like, boom, pow. So I'm like, wait a minute. It was, the sound was coming from that way, which I knew that Michael went down the street that way. So I stopped and I got up and I ran down the stairs and I looked at the front door because the front door was open. And I looked and it was like a car was hit on the side. It was on my car. So it was, I see this guy trying to get out on the passenger side, but he was stuck on my driver's door side because he couldn't get out. And at this point I kind of like jumped back and I'm like, wait a minute. The scene was a confusing blur. She knows now that a car driving by reacted to the gunfire and slammed into her parked car, which she had just moved to the street. But at that moment, all she knew is that her son was standing upright but had blood on him, and that she had heard what she thought were gunshots. This other car slammed into hers just added to the confusion. And it was like everything was moving slow. I thought it was a dream or something. So, so I stepped back and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, wait a minute, Michael down the street. So I went out the door and I ran in front of on the sidewalk and I looked down the street and I'm like, Michael, I'm calling him. I'm like, Michael, are you shot? Are you shot? I'm like, I'm up here calling him like, are you shot? Because in my mind was telling me, no, he's not shot. He can't be shot. That's, that's, he had blood on his shirt. He had on some black Nike shorts. I remember that in a white t-shirt and has blood all over it. And I'm like, that can't be his blood. The way she describes it, she was battling two reactions at once. One that insisted, no, this isn't happening, this couldn't happen, he's standing up so he must be fine. And another that knew she had to get him to the hospital. So instead of me running towards my son, I run back into the house. So I ran upstairs to grab my purse because in my mind, I'm like, I got to take him to the hospital. But I couldn't because my car, the way they hit my car, they were stuck on the car and they jumped out the car. The guys, wherever it was, they jumped out. So in my mind, I'm thinking that they were doing the shooting. I didn't know what was going on. She doesn't fully understand her reaction now. She regrets not running to him straight away. Her brain told her she needed to grab her purse first. Never guess how you'll react in that kind of situation, she says. You don't know until you're in it. Michael's memory is from a different vantage point. He remembers seeing a hand come out of the window of a black Taurus-type car driving by. He heard the first pow and tried to duck. But even at 12 years old, he was five foot eight and a half. Ducking wasn't easy, and outrunning a bullet isn't possible no matter what you see on TV. He fell to the ground before he knew what was happening. I just remember I asked my neighbor, I'm like, okay, help me, help me, and I got up. 
and I put, I seen I got, had a lot of blood, so I would just put pressure on my armors at, because I seen a lot of movies, and you know, that's how to keep the blood for, you know, <laughs> losing a lot of blood. So I put pressure on my armors at there. I was looking for my basketball as well. So I got up looking for my basketball as well. Then I got up, I'm like, man, I gotta go home. Something wrong, I gotta go home. I walked home. Honestly, I feel like I was just in a tunnel vision, like just getting straight home. Like I, I didn't see nobody in the car. I didn't see, I didn't notice the car. I didn't notice the house on the side. But he knew faster than his mom that he'd been shot. He also knew that calling 911 in Detroit was a crapshoot. At the time, the city police were averaging a 30-minute response time to the highest priority calls. A neighbor sprang into action and took both Michael and mom to the hospital. LaShonda prayed the whole way. The team here at Aftermath is grateful to have Simply Safe as a sponsor of the show. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, but I've lived in Los Angeles for 10 years now. It was a big change to move to a big city, but it wasn't until my husband and I moved into a ground floor apartment about six weeks ago that we realized how important it was to protect ourselves with a home security system. We settled on Simply Safe, and here's why. They obsess over details like no other home security company. Here's an example. Simply Safe has a camera you can control from your phone, but because they want to protect your home and your privacy, the team at Simply Safe came up with this brilliant idea a privacy shutter for their camera. You can actually hear the shutter click so you know it's closed. There's also a light on it so you can easily tell when it's on. It's that kind of attention to detail that sets Simply Safe apart and keeps your family safe. Simply Safe isn't just home security. It's home security done right. So check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/aftermath. That's simplysafe.com/aftermath to learn more about Simply Safe today. simplysafe.com/aftermath. Nurses and doctors worked quickly when Lashonda rushed her son into the ER. Michael was swiftly shuttled away. His pulse was weak and he'd lost a lot of blood. LaShonda said a nurse tried to calm her down. And she told me to calm down. I'm like, no, don't tell me to calm down. You're not understanding. I said, that's my only kid. So I went, I just got on my knees. I just started praying like, God, please don't take my son. Word spread quickly through Michael's family that he was at the hospital. Jesse, his grandfather on his dad's side, rushed over. It was kind of rough. He was really, really, really sick from the, sh- the gunshot, and they had him on some medication. They had him talking all out his head and, and all that kind of it was, it was pretty tough. It was rough. At first, things looked bleak. Doctors couldn't find a pulse in his right arm and found an artery was severed. They talked of amputating his arm. He went through emergency surgery to pull an artery from his groin into his arm, and that stabilized him. Once the worst seemed over, Jesse kept his focus by talking to doctors and learning as much as he could about the injury. When I got to the hospital, you kind of get into detail. Well, what happened? What did he get shot at? And they said he had been shot in his right arm, and I know he's left-handed. And then asked what what caliber bullet and different things because when you get shot bullets have a lot to do with it i think he just got shot with a regular bullet like target bullet they'll kill you but they're different from defensive ammunition jesse knew this already because he's familiar with guns and ammunition 
if he had got shot with a hollow point, one of those hollow point bullets, it probably would have taken his arm right off, you know. But because it was probably those target bullets, it's a little different than getting shot with a hollow point. He's right, according to ballistics expert Jim Janello. Hollow point bullet is a bullet that has a cavity in the front of it, and that cavity is made to expand upon impact with uh, soft tissue. So it, it's work, it works from uh, hydraulic, shot, hydraulic pressures. Uh, our bodies are made up of about 80-something percent water, so as the bullet strikes the person, the hollow point itself will expand as it comes in contact with the soft tissue, and it will fold back a portion of that bullet like petals on a flower and create a larger permanent wound cavity. So Grandpa's right. The bullets matter. Jesse talks more about guns, but before I get to that, humor me this context. I have a habit of mentioning that I used to cover crime in Detroit. It's not that I like reciting my resume. Those eight years, encompassing the bulk of my 20s, were the most formative of my career. I covered horrific stories, dismemberments, child murders, serial rapists. I remember arriving once to a fresh shooting scene. A 12-year-old boy was on spring break, so he was out and about on a weekday. He got caught in the crossfire between two gangs, and when I arrived, I saw his brains on the sidewalk. As a writer, I look for details, and the one at this scene that utterly broke me that day was that down the block from the shooting, there was a daycare center, and an employee there had placed a child's floral blanket over the slain preteen's body. It's hard to explain to someone who's never lived in an environment like that what seeing that kind of scene time and again does to you. There are other memories that stand out too, like the time I knocked on a door to ask a neighbor questions about a crime, only to have a man answer and warn that he had a gun pointed at me on the other side of the door. I'd best get off his porch, he said. Another time I drove to someone's house for a pretty basic interview, a profile, I think, and I noticed an elderly man pull up behind me in front of his own house. As he got out of his truck, he used the steering wheel for leverage, and I saw that he was juggling a black handgun in the same hand, just feet behind me. He wasn't menacing about it, and I knew why he had the gun. He lived in Detroit. Things can get ugly here, and people feel a need to protect themselves. Still, it's unnerving when one of those guns is being casually handled right behind you. I say that as someone who's handled guns before. After work, I didn't get much reprieve, despite living a block outside of Detroit near Seven Mile and Harper Woods. My daily life there no doubt felt safer than Michael's, but I still heard gunfire on a nightly basis. I remember a triple homicide down the road. I share all of this because these experiences are not unique when you live in a town that routinely appears on lists for its high murder rates. And it does affect you in many ways you might not even notice initially. If you've never lived in a place like this, it might be hard to understand how guns are viewed here. They're simply a part of life. There's no other way to put it. Jesse knows this. That's why he has a daily routine worked out with his wife. She'll call. I'll open the side door. I'll go out and I'll have my gun when I go out. I'll have my gun. Waiting for her to come home? 
Well, she, yeah, she'll call, you know. When she As in, like, there. so when she gets in the driveway, the walk from the driveway to the right. house. When she get here, I'll have the gate open. I'll be at the side door, and she'll back up in the gate. I'll come outside, and I'll have my gun in my hand. And then I'll lock the side gate and everything, and then we'll come in the house. I can't just, as she come up, just walk out there and not have a, a pistol or anything. And it's bad to live like that and for it to be like that, but that's the way it is. That's how some people live their daily lives. They're worried their wives can't safely walk the short distance from the driveway to the kitchen. Now, Detroit's had a rough reputation since even before it earned the nickname Murder City in the 1970s. And Jesse's lived there since long before that. But he hasn't always felt like he needed to carry a gun. I started carrying at least 10, 15 years ago. Everything just changed in the city. Everything just got really, really just, just bad. You always got to watch and look who's approaching and where they're approaching from. You have to be mindful. I mean, that's just the way it is, living in the city. He doesn't point to guns to explain why he feels so unsafe. He points to parents. See, I'm 73, and it goes back to these kids, they're not being raised. They They don't raise kids anymore. He has, in fact, a rather old school view on what's gone wrong with kids these days. Anything, when you have a child, anything a child say or do from one to two is cute, funny, whatever. By the time he get two, he start messing with things and bothering things. and things. That's where you got to start training him at two years old. Not beat him to death. It's just, Attention span is very short. You don't beat a child to death, but you got to start training him at two. And from if you get a child between two and five to six years old, you'll have him. You'll have him between two to five to six. If you let him get away right in between there, you'll have a lot of problems. Kids just like a car. They run just like a car. You know, a car run good for just so long. And then it runs a little raggedy, a little raggedy. And then you have to have it tuned up. That's just the way a kid run. You tell them, you tell them, and then you have to stop and tune that ass up. When you tune that ass up, then they start running good again. It's a process that you have to get a child through. I can't say a lack of spanking is what's causing violence in Detroit. In fact, there are studies suggesting that spanking does the opposite of what Jesse's claiming here. I can say, however, that a low clearance rate by police likely doesn't help. In Detroit, if you murder someone, you've got about a 70 to 85 percent chance of getting away with it any given year, according to the Murder Accountability Project. If there's any doubt what it means to people living in Detroit that crimes committed against them will likely go unsolved, just listen to Jesse. And see, that's another thing about this city. You think that if you see somebody do something in the city, you just think that, oh, you can get right up in in court and say, oh, yeah, he did it. I seen him do it. You can't do that because 
it might be a whole little crew of them, and they'll come and burn your house down. And then the police will tell you, we know they did it, but we can't prove it. But what good does that do you? Because you get up and say, oh yeah, I seen him do it. He the one that did it. They might kill you, burn you. And that's when you let the criminal element take over here, you know. But as being John Doe citizen, you just can't do that. Like so you, what's the incentive to come forward? You're just putting yourself at risk? You're putting yourself at risk when you come forward. Right. You know, the police, the police can't protect you. They're not gonna sit a car out there to protect you around the clock if you see something and you're a witness to something, you know. So we got a long ways to go. Yeah. We, we got a long ways to go. Michael's shooting underscores this. Police investigated and arrested two young men they said were trying to shoot at rival gang members. Michael was simply collateral damage. The case looked like it was going to trial, but then witnesses failed to appear and the case was dismissed. That's how it ends up that one of the suspects is able to drive by and honk a hello to Michael while he's showing us where he'd been playing ball when he got shot. Those are This isn't the only time Michael's seen the men accused of shooting him. They live nearby, and they've had a few run-ins. Those encounters seem to bother Michael more than LaShonda. I mean, I see him every day. And how do you feel about it, though? Uh, terrible. Like, it makes me mad sometimes. But my mom teach, try to teach me and say, hey, you have to learn how to forgive, but never forget. Yeah, I mean, because we don't know if that was them that, sh you know what I'm saying, doing the shooting, so... Even, but if it was, you know, you still have to, you do have to learn to forgive. Because if that was them that was just doing the shooting, they wasn't shooting at him. Even though, yes, and I still am angry about it because for the fact you shouldn't, if that was you out there, you shouldn't have been out there shooting in the first place. Because what if my son was dead? You know, then we would have had some problems that would not have been good at all. No. One of the suspects wrote Michael a letter that said he was sorry Michael got hurt but insisted he wasn't the one shooting. I think a lot of parents at this point would ask, why didn't you move away? If you live down the street from someone accused of nearly killing your child, why not up and move? If you're able to ask that question, there's a chance you've got a bit more social mobility and disposable income than many who live in Detroit. I, I mean, you just don't have the money to jump up and move into a better area, better schools and all that kind of stuff. It's unfortunate that it happened, but you just, you have to roll with it. I mean, you live in the city, you, you have to roll with it, whatever it is. Michael and his mother still live with her aunt and uncle, who have owned their house a long time. As Bill McGraw, the Detroit historian and journalist, says... They're hardly the only people in Detroit who are in that situation. You know, their house probably is not worth that much if they tried to sell it and move. And a lot of people, both white and African-American Detroit, are in that situation if they bought their house 30, 40 years ago. The value of their house has certainly dropped pretty steadily over the years. Detroit's situation is pretty well documented other places. If somebody wants to dive into it, they can find a more nuanced discussion that I'm going to give. But you hear a lot right now about like a revival, but it's not my sense that that's hitting neighborhoods like you might hope. Is that fair? Yes, that's really fair. There's a, uh, a really quite incredible revival going on, but it's only going on in about eight or nine square miles of Detroit, and Detroit's 140 square miles. 
Now, that doesn't mean the rest of Detroit is in horrible shape. There's some great, vibrant neighborhoods in Detroit, and there are some neighborhoods that have seen some signs of revival, some neighborhoods. Michael's neighborhood, he says. Is definitely not one of those neighborhoods. In general, their neighborhood is, I mean, I think it's really fair to say, is still declining. After the shooting, Michael made headlines. A 12-year-old boy playing with friends on his street is caught in the crossfire of two rival gangs. He'd been shot in March 2012, just a month after the notorious shooting death of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, an unarmed high schooler killed while walking through his neighborhood. Civil rights leader Jesse Jackson came to Detroit and spoke with Michael and LaShonda about violence on a talk radio program. Doctors saved Michael's arm with emergency surgery after the shooting. They said he would have to stop playing basketball for a year to heal. Michael said no way. He vowed to be back playing in two months, which he did, though he broke open his stitches. That's him playing in 2017 for Cass Tech High School. Last fall, he got a basketball scholarship to a college in Alabama. He was excited to leave home, but he didn't love the school, and he missed his mom. He recently moved back home to enroll somewhere closer, but he still aims to keep playing ball. People who know him say he's a standout. Garrett the Barber at Detroit Juice Barbershop has known him for two years. When we met up with Michael, he was sitting in Garrett's chair getting a trim. This is the first time I met him. What am I gonna learn about him today? Um, that he's tall, <laughs> um, he's athletic, he's a pretty cool uh, kid, you know, I, I cut a lot of a lot of young men in the city and he's different from, you know, the normal ones. How so? Um, well, he has his head on straight, he's in school, and you know, he, he faced that adversity, you know, in, in the beginning of the childhood, you know, and he just went through it. Yeah. He's still going. It's hard to tell physically that anything happened to him but it took a long time to reach this point. His hand was like here, like this. And it took- like bent forward. It was bent forward because he had no, they were talking about his owner nerve was damaged. But Michael was so, his faith was so strong. He was like, uh-uh, I'm gonna be playing basketball. You remember that? Mm-hmm. And then that's when they realized it was the medium nerve, which it was like all in here and it was like a branch. But thank God for the physical therapy. Anne and Katie, mm-hmm. they were very good. Yes, because his arm, his he had no, he couldn't even. His arm was here. He couldn't even pull his arm straight. Pull your arm straight. His arm could not do that. Yeah, it was like all the way up here. It was always right. Michael straightens his arm for us. It's noticeably a little smaller than his left arm, and he's more ginger with it. But he does extend it pretty straight. After that healed, they realized he wasn't able to use his right thumb much. He had a tendon transferred into his thumb, which largely fixed the problem. The fingers are like more upright, like these, this point up, this one up, point up like that. You could tell the difference. And then later on, he had to get another surgery on his thumb because he couldn't oppose on his thumb. So they had to do a tendon Tendon transfer. Mm -hmm. They put the tendon right here. His mom and grandpa say his personality changed immediately after the shooting. He had nightmares. He was scared of loud noises. The Detroit Free Press wrote a story about him two weeks after the shooting. He said he was scared to go outside. His family counseled him to get past it. 
Elizabeth asks. It does seem kind of like you don't see a point for him aiming anger or animosity at the suspects. No, I just try to, I just, as a Christian, I try to still teach him how to forgive. You know, you still have to forgive people. And I mean, he gonna still feel however way he wanna feel because it happened to him, right? So I just try to teach him to look forward. You can't keep looking back to things, you know what I'm saying? You get stuck when you looking back and you like, oh, this, you know, you can get in a slump. No, I don't want him to be like that. In the aftermath, she wants him to be the boy she raised, a polite young man who holds doors for strangers, but still acts silly around his friends and family. I ask her. So what's the value in telling us your story? Because is it the whole thing is looking back at it? There's, I'm assuming that there's some kind of value to, to um, being you know, retrospective and being open about what's happened. Well, to me, if you ask me, it's to... Um just to speak out to people that's been affected by gun violence and people speaking out to people that have been affected by gun violence and just helping others, like telling people yeah, my or story. families who lost their loved ones yeah, through gun violence. Is, yeah. And see, if I tell my story or people that's, that's survivors tell their story, it can be useful to the younger generation, people that's upcoming in life. Mm-hmm. So that's how I look I like at that. it. Yeah. What'd he say? <laughs> <laughs> Is a hope to maybe get somebody to stop and think before they're standing at the end of a street where kids playing basketball? Yes. yes. I mean... Or anywhere. Anywhere. Or anywhere. Just, I mean, quit, quit thinking that you just gun is the answer. Because guns aren't the answer at all. That's, that's, nowadays, I notice that that's what the first thing people want to do is go get a gun. It's just terrible. Next time on Aftermath. Say, so you going home? Say, so going back to Columbia? No. Home where? Back to the hood? Back to where I got shot at? You're going back to the heart of East Oakland, where motherfuckers get killed all the time. And you're going to be on a wheelchair. So take care of yourself. That's what the doctor told me. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted. Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook. 